it right? There we go. All right, so 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then we have Colossians uh, chapter 3. We have verses 1 and 2 and 11. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on, on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barber, barbarian or Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. No. Good morning. Good to be with y'all. Uh, today, appreciate your presence, especially any visitors that we have. We've uh, been uh, talking over the past, well, over the the year since January about reconciliation, particularly being ministers of reconciliation. This comes from Second uh, Corinthians five seventeen and eighteen, uh, where Paul tells us that um, the apostles were basically involved in a ministry of reconciliation. We're called to that; it grows out of new creation. And so we've been applying that to different sorts of uh, topics and aspects of our lives uh, individually and collectively as as a church family. Last week we discussed the problem of, I don't know if the cursor slid off the screen or or just power off, power off, that's what it is. It's weird how you have to turn the power on to make devices work. That's what we looked at last week. If you were here you may remember... um, this phrase, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation comes from Revelation 5, where we have this, where John gets this vision from Jesus of, of heaven. And ultimately what ends in the new Jerusalem coming down, Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens, new earth, where God dwells with his people. Uh, he tabernacles with them. And all these themes from the Old Testament, from Genesis, Exodus, and all the way back, Isaiah, um, they're, they're all brought to a, a head. They come to a conclusion in the new heavens, new earth. And we have to juxtapose that uh, with the realities of the world we live in. A world which is characterized, I'd say it's the norm, historically and in the present. A kind of group chauvinism, which pits one people group against another people group. And marketing departments trade on that in subtle ways. Politicians trade on that in very overt ways often very ugly ways. And uh, we learn pretty quickly as we're coming up from the adults in our lives that this is, this is normal. Um, it's got subtle forms, it's got overt and very ugly forms, but this kind of us versus them thinking is what we're talking about here. You know? and, and we think of it as normal. Birds of a feather flock together, yeah. right? It, it seems to almost justify this sort of, I'm in this group, you're in that group. Um, And and there's no question that God made human beings different. Um, We have diverse physical features. We have diverse social and cultural experiences. We speak a welter of different languages. I don't remember how many there are, 6,000 I think, uh, something like that in the world. We come from many different nations. 
we have had different histories, and those different histories confer upon us different perspectives, different lenses through which we view the world and engage the world and engage the scriptures and look at other people. There's just no question, God made us human beings different. I'm talking about the problem when, when those different groups of humans, different people groups, lean into those differences to such an, an extent that they become overdefined by their differences. And, and those differences begin to uh, allow them, they think, to, to, to signify things like superiority and inferiority. They become justification for suspicion toward people in the other group, for fear, for hatred, even violence toward those groups that we otherize. They're not our group, they must be inferior and worthy of the disdain and suspicion and anxiety that they uh, evoke in us. And what I'm trying to say, what I tried to say last week's lesson was basically that is not of God. That is not of God. And so one word about, uh, in case you weren't here last week, why I'm using the word chauvinism is because it's like the only word after going through 15 thesauruses and all the, the words that maybe conceptually get the point across but are uh, offensive to somebody somewhere, and I don't want to ever be offensive. It, it's hard enough to not be offensive, you know, even when you're trying not to. I don't want to add to uh, that. Chauvinism doesn't just mean male chauvinism, chauvinism or species chauvinism, the two words, that, the two ways that it's most often used. It's basically the unreasonable belief in the superiority or dominance of one's own group, one's own people. Whatever group you're in, if you think that's your identity and that's your group, if you think it's better than the other groups, you've got a problem with chauvinism. That's what I'm addressing. It manifests itself in all sorts of ways. But that's our catch-all catch word for this mentality. And, and it is a mentality which inevitably alienates people group from people group. So if the problem is alienation, then what's the solution? The short answer is reconciliation in Jesus Christ. Reconciliation that comes through Jesus Christ. And we are called, if we're followers of Jesus, to participate in that. It's not something we just enjoy and go, thank you very much, I'll live my life, you know, status quo ante, the way it was before. Thanks for handling my eternity. Now I'll just keep on with my regular story, my regular identity. No, no, he calls us to participate in that. We're given a ministry of reconciliation. And so today... We're going to ask the question, what can we do to address this admittedly widespread, but I'm suggesting quite ungodly phenomenon of chauvinism? What has to happen inside us, inside you, inside me, for us to grow into this role of ministers of reconciliation when it comes to how we think about the relationship between people groups? First of all, God's narrative or Christ's narrative or Christ's story must become my story. All right? And I think this is why, often in our family Bible education, we have that, what we call the timeline. It's really kind of the, the plot line of the Bible story. It does move in chronological order um, and, and gives us a, a sense of like what happened. We don't have dates on it. So, but it, it's why we repeatedly recount that overarching story of the Bible to each other. We're reminding ourselves, our children, but also ourselves, what is the 30,000 foot view of the plot of the Bible? What is the narrative? 
from creation to new creation. And how do I fit in? How does that story begin to define me and guide me? Because too many times our guiding narrative isn't this. It's not really about reconciliation in Jesus. We, we can so easily revert to some older, more worldly narrative, more worldly story. That's really where we're getting our identity. And I want to tell you something. Every human being has some kind of guiding story. Even if you haven't thought about this, you've got a default one that you're absorbing from your culture. Maybe it's um, whoever dies with the most toys wins, right? Um, maybe who, whoever has the most likes or the most people liking them, uh, you know, that, that, that's, my, that's who I am. So if I die with 300 of those and you've got three, I win. I was a better human. There's some kind of story going on, and sometimes there's three or four competing, but I'm talking about this meta-narrative, this overarching story by which human beings live. We can't live without it. We make them up if we don't have them. And it, it's according to that story that we determine right from wrong. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, we determine from our story what's worth pursuing, what has value, and what doesn't. Why is he wasting his time on that? Well, where did you get the calculus that made you think that's a waste of time? It's from your story, your central meta-narrative. Uh, what constitutes good behavior and bad behavior? Where do you get that from? So we've got some sort of narrative, some sort of story that's guiding our lives, that we're living by, and I'm suggesting that for us to be ministers of reconciliation, Christ's story must become our story. Last week we talked about Peter. Remember Peter, the apostle, after he gets this divine vision, the sheet with all these formerly unclean animals, ceremonially unclean, unkosher uh, sources of food, uh, now God's saying, rise, kill, and eat what I've made uh, clean, uh, 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 acceptable, don't you make common or unclean. He's given Peter a new narrative about who could be welcome into God's people, God's people group. And Peter could now see that God shows no partiality, as he said. He opened his mouth and said to the people who were kind of incredulous about this, fellow Jews, Truly I understand, he says now, that God shows no partiality, or God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God is not prejudiced, to put it in our parlance. That's Peter. But if you know anything about the biography of Peter, and if you sat in uh, Nick's uh, uh, Wednesday night class, you would have, uh, we, we talked about this a bit, in a later instance, the same Apostle Peter, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write two of the, the epistles that are in the New Testament. He slid back into his older ways. His older storyline of, of how the God, God's people are just the Jews. We're not to eat with Gentiles. We're not to fraternize and hang out with these, these nasty Gentiles. So much so that Paul, the apostle, had to reprimand Peter about this. And we read about it in Galatians 2. But when Cephas, that's Peter's other name, came to Antioch, I, Paul, Paul writes, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James in Jerusalem, Peter was eating with the Gentiles from, you know, in light of his newfound vision. But when they came, and they don't share that perspective, still more narrow and exclusivist, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, the Jews that came from Jerusalem. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, along with Peter. So that even Barnabas, son of encouragement, he's called elsewhere, was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
And Paul says in verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was, notice this, not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's what we're talking about here with this topic. We're talking about the gospel. Right? That, that was last week's lesson. That is gospel. God doesn't leave that alone and go, ah, that's y'all's business. Politics, social stuff, part of the gospel. Paul says so. He said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like you? He goes, you're being incredibly inconsistent. You're not being true to the vision you got that you told the Jerusalem Jews was the new way of looking at people groups in their relationship with one another. And folks, if we don't know our story, if we don't believe our own narrative very well, we will be like Peter. We're going to feel more in a more weighty fashion that social and cultural pressure to capitulate to the old worldly way of thinking. We're going to go back into us versus them. This chauvinism, this alienation. With regard to people groups in the Bible story, that overarching biblical narrative, and that should be our defining story, it envisions the inclusion of all peoples, all nations, and it stretches from Abraham's call to the new creation. We go back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. Abraham is told, in your offspring, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. We know later that that seed is Jesus. Galatians 3, Paul, Paul talks about that and all the way down to Revelation 22, the sort of consummation of everything in eternity. Then the angel showed me, John says, verse 2 of Revelation 22, the tree of life. This sort of reprise of the Garden of Eden. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The nations are there again. The whole Bible story is framed with God's care for the nations. And so when we go, well, it doesn't really matter what I think about how people groups get along, interaction between races or classes or genders or uh, you know, political parties or whatever, that's sort of outside the Bible scope. Au contraire. It's, it's, it's the framing, in many ways, of the story. God never just cared about vertical relationships. He always cared about loving him, but loving your neighbor too. They go together. I want to share with you a quote from a little book called Telling God's Story by John W. Wright. I think this, he makes a really important point here. This is going to sting a little bit to some of us, but you know that the Bible does that sometimes. Let's let it sting. Bible-believing, quote, congregations formed by the cultural horizons of American Christianity have heard and read the Christian scriptures as individuals and citizens of the United States rather than as members of the church. He's talking about universal. Faced with these cultural and congregational expectations, preachers try to use this fusion of the biblical text in these American horizons, American culture. Those preachers hope, therefore, to maintain the adherence of their present members and prove the relevance of the Bible's Bible to seekers who may visit. In other words, they're, they're trying to be real relevant to American culture and blend it with the Bible to be appealing to Americans. Here's the problem. Look where he says, ironically, down at the last sentence there. Ironically, in the process, they are providing biblical sanction for the deepest convictions of society rather than weaving congregations into God's story forming them into a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Which is what Revelation calls the church. 
just as Israel had been called that back in Exodus 19. Zero in on this last phrase here. The deepest convictions of society. Every society, every culture has always had its convictions. They're cultural, they're, they're, they're unexamined. They're like the water the fish swims in. It doesn't know what's in water until you take it out of the water. Like, well, that was pretty nice, actually. Right? It's just the givenness of things. That's culture. The Bible gives us a lens to look at culture critically, to be self-aware theologically. And we got to parse out whether what we believe and, and, and where we're coming from viscerally when we respond to difference and otherness has more to do with the Bible or more to do, if we're honest, with the deepest convictions of our society. I'll remind you that, for example, the deepest convictions of American society for many, many decades, for centuries, included white supremacism, which made its way into the church big time. Racial segregation was practiced in the church, like the MLK quote from last week, the most segregated hour in America is 11 a.m. on Sunday. Thank God that's changed a lot, but it could change more. And it was defended by people, in, in, by Christians in churches. Um, if you don't believe me on that, we can talk later. I, I'd kind of have a hobby of, talk, of studying that kind of thing. be happy to re re refer you to books and all sorts of stuff. If, if that's something you think is, I'm, I'm making up, I assure you not, unfortunately. I wish it were. So we've got to be proactive and intentional about what story am I imbibing? What am I taking in? Because a lot of us, let's be real, we're taking in way more news than we are Bible. We're sucking in so much Fox News or CNN or Pick Your Network. And I'm not saying don't be aware and try to know what's going on, but John Duros preached a great lesson a year, year ago or so where he kind of like called foul on what passes for a lot of our news. A lot of it is identity commentary. It's, it's very much in, in, in cahoots with identity politics. It's, it's, it's not just facts, all right? So if you're taking that in at a rate of, you know, 10 to 1 over taking the gospel in, your convictions are going to be as much the convictions of society as they are the convictions of the gospel. So think about that. Secondly, Christ's life must become my life. His story must become my story. If I'm going to be a minister of reconciliation in a world of chauvinism, group versus group, then Christ's life must be my life. And what I mean by this is, I guess another way to put this is, Christ's story isn't just something I learn, it's something I must live. It's something I must become. And I think that's why a term like new creation is used in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Your version may say new creature. New creation is a term not merely of doing. It's a term of being, isn't it? He doesn't say if anyone's in Christ, he needs to do this. He didn't start there. He says, no, he needs to be this. Creation is, you're passive if you're a creature. You get created. In the case of humans received in the gospel, we're open to that. But we're not recreating ourselves. We're not doing the transforming. If you're in Christ, then you will be a new creation. So we're talking about what we are. Way before we talk about what we do. And I think half the time the problem is we're not, we, aren't, we aren't what we need to be yet. And we're, we're too quick to ask what I need to do. We need to go, who, am I even the right person here? Am I, trans, am I being transformed? 
We'll get to the doing. He gets to the doing right here in this passage. You remember last week we talked about not showing partiality, not showing prejudice. It's part of God's character. And as new creation, this is how we take on God's character. He's the creator. We're being remade in His image all over again, in the image of Jesus. And then we take up, here's the doing, a ministry of reconciliation. But I want you to notice the order. Notice that new creation precedes the ministry of reconciliation. I think that is crucial. I think sometimes we want to, we want to get this backwards. Let's talk about what we need to do. I need to be a minister. Okay, what's that look like? Well, he doesn't start there. He starts with being something else. First, you're made, transformed. And I, I, that's an ongoing thing, of course. But that, the latter will not work if, fully if the former is not going on. If you're not continually becoming Jesus, being remade in His image is an ongoing thing. Christ's life must become my life. And one part of this, folks, is for us to open our minds to transformation, to open our hearts, open our insides. New Testament word is minds, to this transformation. Often we're very conformed to the world, much more than we want to admit. I know I am. It's a continual struggle. And when it comes to how we see the relationship between people groups, we still very much think in an us versus them fashion. Come to church, talk about how great Jesus is and how great His love is for everybody. Then we go out and then respond to things in the news or other people just like a worldly person would, like he didn't even touch that. All those problems aren't real problems. Well, a whole lot of people on the other side of it think they are. Would you, would you listen more if it was your kid? We're pretty conformed to the world, truth be told, often. To be transformed, what does it take? What does Paul say in Romans 12, 2? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, changed, metamorphosed into a different creature. How? What's he say? It's about our mind. The renewal begins inside us, and then it is manifest in our lives, in our actions. In other words, we need a new mind. We, we need a new brain. You ever feel like that? Man, I just need a whole new brain. We need to be rewired, we might say. In the ways we think about the relationships between people groups, whether it's races or nations or subcultures, you know, even high school cliques, political groups, we need a new brain, a new mind. And I think this is what Colossians 3, our other scripture reading for today, is saying. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds. Your, your mind is getting oriented from, by a different you know, source. It's, it's from heaven. It's from above. It's where God is. It's what Christ did. It's growing out of the resurrection and the whole new creation. Your mind is being changed. You're being rewired. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are... Now, what are the implications of that? Look what he says. It's exactly what we're talking about. There's a lot of them before he gets to this, but in verse 10, still the same context, still probably, no, and Paul, the same run-on sentence. 
It's probably like a you know, 27 line, sen- line sentence. You ever notice that Paul's grammar, it, it would have, any fr- freshman comp class would have like, eh, F. Holy Spirit inspired, so zip it. <laughs> You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What does that mean? Well, one of the things it means is this new self that's in Christ, that has this new mind that's heavenly, not earthly, that's been trans- being transformed, it's not just conformed. There, there is no Greek or Jew. Circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. All the people group distinctions. You think about that differently if your mind and yourself are being transformed by Christ. Difference, otherness, diversity, whatever word you want to use, it doesn't have to trigger disapproval. It doesn't have to trigger suspicion. It doesn't have to signal anxiety or danger. Examine that, if that's in your heart a little bit. Examine, go there. Be as concerned about the impact of that and whether that is Christ-like as you are, whether you're made to feel guilty. Oh, the first thought for a lot of people is, my group's made made me feel guilty. So what? So what? You're being made to feel guilty about your heritage. Your heritage is a, a, a mix of stuff anyway. Everybody's is, if it's human. Get over yourself. Think about the gospel. Not Judeo-Christian heritage, whatever that means. That's a mixed bag, I guarantee you. Think about the gospel. What if diversity and variety and difference and other instead signified beauty? Unity, love. The cool thing is we can be rewired. We can retrain ourselves, or God can do that. He made us so that our brains can be transformed. Early on in this, this year, when I first broached the subject of the Ministry of Reconciliation as our 2023 theme, we had a Q&A type sermon, remember? Like week one or two, I often do that at the beginning of the year. And one of the questions I asked was, why is it so difficult for humans to be reconciled when they're estranged or alienated? I got a text answer that was, I don't know, book length from um, one Nikki, oh, I almost said Hilton, Birkenstock, Nikki Birkenstock, Chad's wife. Um, and I'm going to give you a little excerpt of that right now. She was talking about, you know, in general, why, like from her mental health training, like, like what's going on? Why is it so difficult to reconcile? Here she is. <laughs> and I've, I've, it's an excerpt because it was long, longer and um, I had to work on some of her grammar a bit. But no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, that, was a jo- that part was a joke. God designed our brain to keep us safe. All right, so this, she's talking here from like a neurology standpoint, psychology standpoint. God designed our brain to keep us safe so we wouldn't just fall off cliffs, touch hot stoves consistently. Can you imagine if we didn't learn from it, we were like, well, that was last time, maybe it won't do it this time. And you did it 37 times till your hand was gone. Or try to hug bears, for example. Maybe that was a one-off big old woolly creature that was 10 foot tall. It ate one of our children, but maybe this time it won't. No, it's kind of good to generalize, right? <laughs> to be prejudiced against that thing, in a sense, biologically, if you want to keep existing. So 
our brains do that on one level. Okay? The brain also, I'll quit commenting now, the brain also has features that learn from the environment. The amygdala, along with other limbic system parts of the brain, does not know the difference in some of these circumstances, and depending on one's environment growing up, as well as their predisposed sensitivity to fear, humans can have overreactive fear sensors that affect ability to regulate or engage with the fearful thing. In other words, you're too afraid. You've made up something. Our brain also sees differences as scary. That's what we're talking about in the sermons, right? It's different, it must be bad. Stay away. Which can also be known as biases. We can learn through experiences or through stories, sometimes news outlets, that's her parentheses, not mine, to fear people. And other emotions, such as anger and sadness, can increase these feelings of hostility toward another group of people over time. Reconciliation is difficult then, in some cases, due to the brain's reactivity. But then she adds this, and this is what I want you to really notice. This is not unchangeable. You believe Jesus was raised from the dead? I bet he could work on this in your heart and your brain. What do you think? <laughs> a little bit less of a miracle? Because God made our brains plastic, that is malleable, neuroplasticity, we can become aware of our biases and work to regulate ourselves for the work of engaging with others well. This takes a lot of effort. But then she adds, I think God wants us to make that effort. Amen. If the Bible means anything, he wants us to make that effort. And to stop acting like that's somehow offline for the gospel. I know we want it to be. It, it hurts to work on things as visceral and fundamental as those kinds of things that are, in, that are wired into us. Wrongly, I might add, from a biblical standpoint. It, it's, it, Satan can use that too, right? All right. We have to allow that to happen. That's my point. Let me give you one illustration here. So this is a bunch of mushrooms. There's zillions of kinds of mushrooms. I don't know how many. Lots of them, right? People go forage in the forest for them. I just rely on the grocery store to do that for me because I'm like, I don't know about that one. Let's suppose that um, the, the world has this giant variety of mushrooms. Suppose I hear of a, a bad experience with a certain type of mushroom. Somebody eats one, it, it makes them very sick or even takes their life because it was poisonous. Do I then generalize from that to anything and everything in the group called mushrooms? Randy does, but Randy has the palate of an eight-year-old, so <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. If you, don't, if you guys don't like mushrooms, that's a whole other sermon i got to do. Um, one of the main sources, naturally, of vitamin D, which is very important if you're not going to get, you know, or you can take skin cancer, whichever, you know, son. Um, anyway, um, anyway, so, yeah, I'm assuming you, you, you would say, well, no, not all mushrooms are bad. We had a pizza last night. We, we had mushrooms on it. But there's certain mushrooms that are really bad. Should I just go that every, now that one mushroom caused a problem, the whole group is evil and scary and anxiety-inducing, and I'm going to make my new identity of the anti-mushroom. I've got conspiracy theories about what the mushroom group is doing. Just all sorts of stuff. Or am I going to be a human being who has this God-given miracle of a brain? The Bible would call it repentance, which literally means to perceive differently, metaneo, to have a new take. And psychologists would call it neuroplasticity. 
We have incredible ability to rewire our brains. And the gospel would do just that. I can rise above it. And that brings up our last point. Christ's love must become my love. I must learn to love others like Christ loves them. And like, honestly, Christ loved me. Because you know what? Guess what? Somebody somewhere thinks I'm the other. I'm the other to a lot more people than I'm the inside group. Truth be told, all of us are. I'm the scary, dangerous one. If you're going to stereotype people. My kind have done all kinds of bad stuff. I'm using kind with huge quotes. I hope I'm not being held to that. But I also hope I'm not saying I'm not even going to address that topic. Because I don't want to feel guilty for my group. I care more about the gospel and loving that person way more than I do that. Don't let somebody talk you into that. I'm suggesting that's earthly. That's about you. Love is other-oriented. Love isn't about you. And we need to love like Christ loves. And let me tell you what I think that means. At least three things here briefly, and then we'll stop. If I love like Christ loves, that means when it comes to difference, I'm not going to allow myself to just viscerally recoil because it's different. Every single human being, whether they look like you, whether they, they think like you or not, whether they or lined up with God's truth even. Every single one of them is made in the image of God. Remember what Paul said when he came to Athens? A pagan center? In many ways, the university town of the Eastern Roman Empire. Paul says to this largely pagan group, Mars Hill looming in the background, temples to Greek idols everywhere. God made from one man, one human being, Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And that included those pagans right there. No? He still loved them. They were off on all sorts of things. But he still says he made you and everybody else to seek him because he loved them. He's seeking them in turn. That, to, to acknowledge the full humanity and divine image-bearing nature of every person, however diverse they are from you and your people group, doesn't mean you're condoning every single thing they ever said or thought or did. Any more than anybody's condoning everything you ever said or thought or did. We're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. All. Paul still points these Athenian pagans toward the risen Christ, right? He didn't just leave them where they are. But I want you to notice this. He also tried first to find common ground with them so that he could point them to Christ in a way that didn't instantly repel them. Where does he begin? Anybody remember? Idol to the unknown God. Let me, here's one of your idols. Let me start there. I have a good mind that a lot of preachers would get fired for doing that historically in Christian churches. That's what Paul did. And then he proceeds to quote pagan poets, not one but two of them. Eratus and Menander, from all we can tell, that wrote some true things. He's not above find truth, he find truth. It's all God's truth if it's truth. So here's Paul, not trying to alienate and be overdefined by his people group vis-a-vis -vis theirs, but trying to find common ground so he can bring them into God's people group. He cares more about that because he loves them. He doesn't recoil at any difference. Secondly, if I love like Christ, I'm going to listen 
My first inclination when I meet people who are different from me or I, re I regard them as from a different people group or they're saying something that's not familiar to my people group or my news network or whatever it is, is I'm going to listen to them. Are y'all listening? <laughs> listen, listen to them. That's way harder than it sounds. I was listening to a, a podcast done in the States, I don't know, three or four months ago. Sean or somebody sent it to me. It was uh, Will Arnett and Justin Bateman's podcast, and they had Bono on, the lead singer of U2, and, he, and they asked his thoughts. Remember, he's an Irishman who grew up in the Troubles, where Irish Republicans and British soldiers are bombing each other all the time. You couldn't even send your kids to school because like, there might be a, a bomb going off under the bus. I mean, just chaos. It was terrorism to beat the band. And they've pretty much moved past that, it looks like. So they're asking, asking his perspective on the question was, how do we heal the breach in our culture, in American culture? What do you think about that? Here's what he said. We all need to learn to listen deeply. We are in a culture right now that does not listen. If somebody disagrees with you, they just start shouting the slogans and caricaturing and talking to their own group about how bad that group is and how wonderful they are. Both sides, three sides, 15, I don't know. Or do you think we're listening a lot? Here's what he says. We need to listen to learn, uh, learn to listen deeply. We need to listen especially to people who annoy us, even people we don't like. Guess what? You might start liking them once you know them. In Christ, we'll love them. And we see the young Jerusalem church modeling this very behavior, this listening disposition when, if you remember this example in Acts 6, there's a daily distribution of food, a benevolence ministry, because there's a lot of people who become Christians in Jerusalem from the Jewish diaspora. They're Hellenistic Jews. That is, Hellenistic just means Grecian culture and language. So they're, they're from elsewhere. Some of them might have been Hellenized Jews who'd moved back to Jerusalem, but still have that in their culture. They can speak Greek or other native languages from elsewhere. Maybe they don't speak Aramaic the current language of Jewish people in Palestine in that day and time. And there's all sorts of cultural differences. All you got to do is have three or four cultural differences, and that makes people want to fight and, and be otherized in each other, right? We see that all around us. It doesn't take much. <laughs> birds of a feather flock together, you know. The problem is we're not birds. Should have just called this term, we're not birds. <laughs> Don't be a bird. This church, how do they handle this problem? The, the complaint comes to the, the, the apostles that, hey, the Hellenistic, our Hellenistic widows, they're not getting food in the daily ministration. They're being neglected. The Hebrew, the Hebrew uh, women, Christians are, but their sisters in Christ who are Hellenistic Jews from elsewhere, they're not getting the same amount of food. It looks like there was some sort of discrimination or at least neglect going on in favor of the local Palestinian type Jews. So the diaspora Jews, the ones who are dispersed throughout the centuries, who are there now and come to Christ, they're being neglected, they're hungry. So the apostles say, we're gonna keep preaching the gospel, we're gonna appoint seven men to handle this matter, the serving tables, they call it. 
And they asked the group of disciples to pick out the men. And here's who they picked. I'm not going to read the whole thing. This is the part in red, because of the sake of time. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus. What's significant about those names? They're all Greek. The people chosen to represent the people who'd felt prejudged, prejudiced against, neglected, discriminated against, are people from the group that has the complaint. That is so different from what you often hear in our culture wars. We hear you. We'll, we'll get some people from our side to figure out what it... No, no. Let the wronged people... They're the ones feeling the pain. That is, that's some kind of listening right there to me. And the apostles say, good deal. You take care of it. We trust you. The people group here is the church of Jesus Christ. Birds of several feathers can flock together. And they're listening to, to those that they would have regarded as other. Thirdly, if I love like Christ, I will, I will actively resist group chauvinism. How do I do that? How do I personally resist this sort of dynamic of group chauvinism that's out there? One way is by choosing to cross the boundaries set up by the world. Don't respect those boundaries. They're ungodly. Flout them. Reject them. Boldly. Kindly, but boldly. Jesus certainly did. Who is the biggest boundary breaker in the history of the world? I mean, the eternal Logos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Talk about a delta in character and conduct and holiness versus sinfulness and being infinite versus being finite. You can't get a greater difference. C.S. Lewis says asking God to incarnate Himself as a human being is like asking a human being to incarnate Himself as a slug. Only way greater of a difference. Jesus crossed boundaries, and he taught us to cross boundaries. In Luke 10, remember the question there from the, the Jewish law expert, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, you tell me. And he says, love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And a second is love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, do that, and you'll live. And the guy says, well, who's my neighbor? There we go, <laughs> right? That's what we do. That's what the world does. That's what I'm trying to get across. That is worldly. It's not of the gospel. And so Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But it's Jewish leaders who walk by a fellow Jewish man, half dead, beaten up on the side of the road. The road went from Jerusalem to Jericho. They don't even have time for him. It takes a Samaritan, an impure, otherized group that was on the receiving end of lots of Jewish chauvinism. It takes a Samaritan to illustrate to a Jewish law expert, what neighbor love looked like. And the pivot in the story is this. But a Samaritan, Luke 10, 33, when he, when, as he journeyed, came to where he was, this beaten up man, and when he saw him, he had compassion. It all hangs on that. Love hangs on compassion. Especially loving neighbors who you think are different from yourself. That hangs on finding common ground that crosses the difference. Compassion means common suffering. I share, I feel it, I'm having empathy. It's a very similar concept. 
He had competition for a fellow human, and that meant more to him than honoring any group identity he had. Well, I'm worried about where our nation's going. Don't worry about the church. Worry about you and the gospel. God will take care of the nations. He's the one who appoints their times and seasons and all that anyway. Paul said in Acts 17. Half that stuff isn't even good anyway in any nation's history. You think our nation just pristine, everything we've done is perfect? Ask a Native American. We're human. Of course we see. I love our nation. I, I, lo- I do. It's, it's, to me, the greatest one that's ever existed. But most people say that of their nation, if we're honest. But it doesn't mean it's just like perfect. We, that's not even our frame of reference. And I think that's half the problem. We're thinking as a group identity, uh, in a, a group identity mode in the group isn't the church. Another way to put this point is Jesus is teaching that we welcome the stranger. Remember last week we talked about Leviticus 19, the passage from which love your neighbor as yourself, the second great command, comes from originally? And we talked about how when it applies it there, Moses says it means loving the immigrant or the foreigner the way you love your own, your own people from your own tribe, from Israel. Why? Because you were once immigrants. You were once sojourners. You were once the foreigners. I am the Lord. God's character, ultimately. Jesus, none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, invokes that phrase in Matthew 25, one of his last orations before he dies, when he says God is going to gather all the nations in the future at at judgment, and he's going to have them assemble before him, and he's going to divide them as, as as a shepherd divides sheep from goats. The one headed to eternal life, the one not. an eternity away from God, with all the awful stuff that would go with that. What's the basis in that story? One of the things Jesus says is the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. There's a lot more here. But here's the point I'm trying to make. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Well, that just means somebody I don't know on the street. No, it's the word xenos. Anybody know that? Xenophobia? Xenophobic? I don't like foreign people or foreign stuff. I'm a xenophobe. In fact, in Acts 17, verse 21, the identical word is used, the plural of it, xenoi. And it's translated foreigners. All the Athenians and the foreigners who would come there, it says. What he's talking about here. Don't think modern, modern nation states, because they didn't really have that as much then. It's city-states, and you've got an empire overlaying all of them. But people thought in these sort of you know, group, this is my people, this is my tribe, this is my family or kindred or clan or nation. All the different ways that people groups divide off from one another and estrange themselves from one another. The world, and I would suggest Satan, wants to use our, our, our God-given brains and the way they're wired against us and against the good of the world. And here comes the gospel in from nowhere, from outer space. No, we had nothing to do with it. Boom, it just lands. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us and gives us this other way. And if we'll repent, if we'll allow ourselves to be malleable and to be changed by the gospel, we can be very different people. Will that hurt you? Yes. Is it uncomfortable? Yes. 
It's embarrassing sometimes to say, well, your people group did all this stuff, and it still hurts. It, that's not history for me. I can tell you some ways, if you'll listen to me, that, that some of that's still real for me in ways you've never probably seen or felt. Do you care enough to listen? Or do you care more about not being embarrassed or not feeling bad? That's about you. The world has always specialized in us versus them thinking. And it's going to keep on doing that. It never hasn't. Christ died, however, to reconcile all the world to himself, and he calls you and me, if we're Christians, to work with him. It is a ministry of reconciliation. It's a ministry. There's no Christianity without it. This is neighbor love on the ground. One of the many manifestations of it. We will not be faithful to this calling. Hear me now, and this is my last sentence, in case you're worried. It's 11.35, people are going to die, right? This is important stuff, I'm sorry, it really is. And it's not been that emphasized in, in, in the history of modern American Christianity. It's often been demonized. We're going to talk about it. We won't be faithful to this calling unless the biblical story truly becomes our story, truly becomes our story. That means not just when you're in here, but when you're out there on Tuesday or Wednesday at your work or you're playing or you're doing whatever, you, you begin to think and engage people and ideas and the news and what your friends say differently. On the ground. That story truly has to become my story. We will not be faithful to the calling to be ministers of reconciliation unless we submit to our transformation to becoming new creation, and unless our way of engaging otherness is the way of love, the way of Jesus Christ, rather than the worldly way of fear and chauvinism. Thank you for your attention, these two lessons. Um, there's a lot in here. These probably should have been like six lessons, but you'd got tired of the topic. I, I don't know, you know, is it better to go longer a couple times or to beat something to death for five weeks? Always a preacher toss-up, but... Thank you. I do appreciate your kind attention. I know these things make us feel uncomfortable because we're human and we're sinners and we have habits. Um, I struggle with all this, everything I ever preach, probably more than some of you. But let's be people who, who do struggle. Let's let the gospel work on us. Amen? All right. If we can help you in any way, let us know by coming to the front. While together we stand and sing. <laughs>